Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. One of my favorite quotes from Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, women belong in all the places where decisions are being made. This quote really inspires me, and I am passionate about women participating fully in our democracy. But at the same time, when I think about getting involved in politics beyond voting and the occasional fundraiser, I kind of want to hide in my closet. So I was intrigued by the book Women in Politics, Breaking Down the Barriers to Achieve True Representation by Mary Chung Hayashi. I just finished reading this book. I loved it. And I'm so excited to discuss it today with the author. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Amy. I am so happy to be here. And everything you just said kind of summarized what I wanted to say. So I can see that this is going to be an awesome podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. I really did love your book. And we'll just start by me reading your professional biography so listeners get a little bit acquainted with you professionally, and then I'll ask you to share your personal story afterwards. Perfect. Mary Chung Hayashi is an award-winning author, national health care leader, and former California State Assembly member. With a distinguished career in public service, Mary has spearheaded substantial reforms in mental health services, championed gender equality, and forged powerful, unprecedented partnerships for social causes that previously had no financial or public backing. Recognized as Legislator of the Year by the American Red Cross and the California Medical Association, Mary has also been featured on Red Book's Mothers and Shakers list and Ladies Home Journal's Women to Watch. As Principal of Public Policy and Advocacy Solutions, she has successfully advised business and policy leaders on some of today's most complex public policy matters. Mary remains a steadfast proponent of social justice expansion and the rights of underrepresented communities. Well, Mary, that's a very impressive biography. I'm so excited to hear kind of more about some of those details and wondered if you could kind of start us from the beginning, where you're from, your origins, your education, and kind of what makes you you and brought you to the work that you do today. Thank you. You know that bio was written by us, so of course it's going to be good. It's always a little bit <laughs> embarrassing when when I hear it, you know, but I appreciate the shout out. You know, I, I tell people that I'm not a professional author, but this is my second book that I published. And I realized that I really love to publish because when I came to this country and I was so lost because I was 12 years old, my parents were very conservative, traditional parents. You know, they expected girls to get married and have kids. And that was kind of what their expectation was. And I went to Cal State Long Beach during my second year. I was like 19 years old and I took a women's studies class. And I initially thought that it was about how to be a good mom or a good woman to like a spouse or something like that, like a home economics class. And when I took this class, I started reading about women feminist literature. And that really changed my life. So I keep wanting to write because I think just thinking about what that did for me, what the class and the literature did for me, I want to offer women and girls the same thing, you know? And so I find myself keep publishing because, you know, one of my goals in writing this book is to inspire other women to write their own life path and that they could see that they don't have to be controlled by their ethnicity or family or background. And that's really the goal. 
And I lost my sister to suicide when she was 17. I was 12. That was the same year that my family immigrated from Korea to California. And I didn't speak any English and grew up in Orange County where very few, you know, at the time, I mean, it's very different now, but at the time, very few Asian American families or, or any minorities really you know, I just grew up with people who used to call me Connie because they only knew like one Asian person who was Connie Chung on television. And so I didn't mind it because I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> you know, there's this like successful Asian woman on TV and that's my nickname, you know. And so when when I got to go to college, I just didn't really have any expectation, you know, from myself. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing other than what my parents expected of me. But after taking that class, I realized that I could, you know, do something with my life and moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area, finished school here. And when I was 26, I started a national nonprofit organization dedicated to addressing Asian American women's health issues. Just kind of thinking, you know, back what happened to my sister. It's like now, you know, it's, decades later, I feel like I've spent my whole life thinking about her. And that organization that I started, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 26. <laughs> and I'd only been in the country for, you know, 10 plus years. But I really wanted to do something about the stigma and discrimination and why a lot of Asian families don't want to talk about mental illness. And as long as we don't talk about it, and as long as there's stigma, people aren't going to ask for help like my sister. It's been a great journey. And I wanted to document that in this book. And also through my own political experience, you know, my parents were always like, don't ask money from strangers. And what do you do as a politician? You got to call strangers for money and votes, you know? And so I had to overcome a lot of cultural barriers to run for office and win, serve, you know, and just wanted to offer something out there that says, you know, you really, you can kind of do whatever you want, because if I can do it, <laughs> you really don't have to be controlled by your background or your family history. Hmm. So that's my, that's my, I think, best way to introduce the book and myself is that it's really for everyone. I often read books about very famous women leaders and they're very inspiring, but I also feel like many women I work with, have worked with, aren't going to get to that level. You know, they're not going to be Michelle Obama. And running for city council takes just as much courage as running for president, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so this book is about just collection of different journeys, you know, taken by women from all different backgrounds. Well, I very much felt that as I read the book, too. There were so many things that were new to me in your particular experience, but I related very much all the way through like, oh, I felt that. Or even though that's a slightly different variation, it was relatable enough that I thought, okay, well then, yeah, maybe I could try this other thing, too. So yes, that very much came through. So really? you want to run for office? Amy? I do not want to run for office. No, not that. <laughs> but maybe like one small thing, like a couple of things in there is like, okay, I could maybe do those things. So yeah, definitely like maybe some some smaller increments. But one thing I want to maybe start as we kind of dig into the book, start with something that you just mentioned. And those are maybe some specific gender norms in Korea and in your family of origin that shaped 
your gendered consciousness as you grew up? What were some of those factors? Right. And, you know, we, we were raised to be, you know, good girls. And I think that's something that you could probably relate to as well. You know, that we, especially us, we weren't allowed to really voice our opinion or talk about any like family or personal problems. And in fact, silence was viewed as a strength. You know, if you don't say anything, then that's really good. (laughs) And so we were raised to keep thoughts to ourselves. We don't really share our opinions. We're, you know, just more of a supportive role. And my parents like supported my brothers through college. You know, they were expected to go to college and they paid for them to go to college. Whereas they weren't really doing that with the girls. You know, we were more encouraged to be good girls and then become like good mom. And that was really the expectation. And when I think about my sister who passed, she couldn't ask for help because, I mean, you don't ever talk about those things. You know, and you don't like shame the family by talking about, you know, any kind of struggles or problems that you're dealing with. So, yeah, so it was it was rough transition when we moved here, you know, because I had friends who were like completely opposite of that. And I'm thinking, what? You you know, you can't wear makeup when you're a teenager. Like, I still don't have my ears pierced because that was not allowed. So growing up in Orange County, I think I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong, but that was very challenging as well because I didn't speak the language. So I perfected that invisibility, you know, just being a good girl, being quiet, being under the radar, and just kind of like keeping thoughts to myself. And that's what I did. And I was really good at it. I was very much invisible for a long time. You include a quote in the book, and I think it's Ernest Hemingway, And the quote is, you are so brave and quiet, I forget you are suffering. That really, really hit home for me. Such a powerful quote. I think you used it in relation to your sister specifically, but I think that has broad relevance for people. Yes, yes. And I get asked a lot, like, this is about women in politics, Mm -hmm. but how come Mariel Hemingway wrote the foreword, you know? Mm -hmm. And she's, she's not in politics. But we worked together on a mental health ballot measure back in 2004. And she's such a powerful person because she's able to articulate, you know, all the suicides that happened in her family. Mm-hmm. But using that painful experience to, you know, help other people and lift them up. And so I really wanted her to write it because this book is about women and their journeys and journeys toward leadership. And yes, you know, I'm in politics. And so we have a lot of focus on women in politics, but it's really more than that. It's about lifting women up. And that quote, when I used it in the book, Muriel was like, oh, wow, like your book kind of like summed it up. And I, I was really thinking of my sister because we were taught to be good girls and be quiet and silence being quiet is, is kind of a sign of a strength. You know, it's seen as something positive that what else was she supposed to do? And, you know, I often think about like, oh, as a 12 year old, could I have helped her in any way? You know, but it's just so hard because I'm like, well, I'm trained not to say anything about any problem. And so I think when I read that quote, it just kind of reminded me of her because she was such a strong person. But at the same time, 
when you're quiet and when you don't have a voice, people can forget that they need help. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I really appreciate you pointing that out because the book is really, even though it's titled Women in Politics, it's really about women and lifting women up. And we all have our collective journeys, like individual journeys and collective journeys toward leadership and what we go through. And everyone that I interviewed bring this level of personal cause and passion to what they do. So that's what that quote's about. And I'm glad that you were able to relate to that as well. Yeah, Yeah. thank you. Yeah. So one thing also that that you write about and that definitely resonates and tracks in my life experience too is a lot of people, but I think specifically more women say they, you know, quote unquote, don't like politics or they're not political, right? right? And so I just wanted to ask you, why are more women needed in politics? And then we'll talk about like some of the barriers that keep women out, but why are more women needed in politics? Right. And I, you know, I, I dedicate like six chapters to talking about very specific barriers, but in all of those chapters, I talk about why women are needed and what they do and what the studies show. And it's not just the interviews, but research that I've cited has shown that significant advancement in healthcare access, educational opportunities, women's rights, correlate with more women serving in government. And one example that I give is late Congresswoman Patricia Schroeder. I mean, one woman did, I mean, she had part in the Family Leave Act, which is a groundbreaking federal law. You know, she was an attorney and had kids. And she was the first woman to serve on the House Armed Services Committee. And she questioned why women weren't allowed to fly in combat. And she literally single-handedly changed that for the whole country, you know, allowing women to participate in that space. And so those are the specific examples of what women legislators do. And in the studies, multiple studies that I use talk about women run for office to solve problems. It's not that men don't solve problems. But they're raised to seek leadership positions. They're encouraged to be ambitious, you know, Mm -hmm. and women, they don't really run for public office because they want to seek fame and fortune. That's not who we are. You know, we're supposed to be like good girls and like build coalition and get along with everybody. And, And so we sort of bring that to this line of work as well. And so more women serving in government has resulted in increased reproductive rights for women. You know, obviously a lot of women elected officials come out of school boards because, you know, we become active in PTA and then we run for school board and then we run for higher office. And so education systems are better. I mean, there's some of the larger studies more on a global scale too, that getting more women elected actually helped, you know, bring clean water in India. I mean, there's just all these specific examples. And so not having that 50% of the brain power and talent participate in our government is, is a big loss. Okay, so then let's dig into those barriers then that keep women from participating. What are some of the major factors that the data shows? Well, so I always like to talk about three sort of top three cultural barriers. And 
I sort of give names to them, but this, you know, I think a lot of people, not just in politics, but just everyone who's ever applied for a job would relate to this. And that's ambition gap, qualification gap, and likability double standards. And those are like the big themes that I talk about. There, there was a study that, you know, that looked at qualification gap for women where more women were likely to assess themselves not qualify for public office when men and women had the exact like identical qualifications more men said oh i'm qualified to run more, <laughs> you know less women said i'm qualified to run well men who said they were not qualified to run they said they would run anyway uh-huh. <laughs> and that's the ambition gap so you see the qualification gap is like, well, women don't apply for jobs unless they hit every qualification mark on the job announcement. Like, oh, I don't have that experience. I'm not going to apply. Whereas men, they will apply if they meet 60% of the uh, qualification list. Like, oh, I can do this. Whereas women are like, no, 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 I'm not ready yet. You, you know, And then that is a direct result of like this ambition gap I talk about a lot, which is that, you know, from when we were young, we're not encouraged to seek leadership. My God, if I show any ambition, I get penalized for that because I'm not supposed to be. And studies show that, you know, voters don't really like women who are ambitious. And so the minute you announce for public office, the voters are already suspicious of you. Like, why is she doing this? Why is she doing like nonprofit instead, you know? And so that gender bias is there and they're very much related. So men would still run for office, even if they're not qualified, whereas women who are qualified wouldn't run. So that's some of the challenges that we deal with. And then there's also the likability double standards. I mean, it's not really our fault because there are institutional barriers, systemic discrimination against women. You know, no matter how hard I try, like I told another woman who was county party chair at the time that I wanted to run for office and she discouraged me Hmm. from running. So it's, it's not always like the women who are assessing themselves as less qualified. And there's this likability double standard where women not only have to prove that we're qualified, but we also have to be light meaning voters will vote for Donald Trump, even if they don't like him. But they will not vote for Hillary Clinton if they don't like her, even though she is more qualified. And so that likability double standards is a real issue for like many women, not just in politics, but I think even in the workplace, women are often told they're too aggressive, too ambitious, and men employees aren't like hardly told that. And so I think we've got a lot of work to do like within ourselves, but also just as a, as a society, I think we need to start thinking about that differently. You know, why do we need to be liked and qualified to succeed in politics or in the workplace when we don't hold the same standard of men? And so those are like the three big things that I highlight in the book. And I think that, you know, from like a young age, you know, girls are, you know, taught to diminish their skills and their achievements, whereas like boys are taught to value their characteristics. And so what happens is a lot of times people view men on their potential, not what 
their qualifications are, but what they could potentially do. Whereas, you know, women aren't really given that leeway. And I think, you know, in politics that has contributed to women succeeding in that space. Another part of likability that you talk about in the book is the appearance double standard, right? In order to like a woman, she has to look a certain way and men aren't held to that standard. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Well, I mean, like how many times do you hear like people criticize Bernie Sanders' clothes? <laughs> right? Or his hair. Or his, yeah. yeah right. Or the I wrinkles. Mean, right. I mean, they can look anything and people just sort of accept them. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I don't know if you recall, but like right after Joe Biden won, his first state of the union address was just all about what Kamala Harris wore that night. Yep. And, you know, some of the bloggers were like, oh, God, we need a, you know, fashion police. And she's wearing a UPS outfit because she wears some brown suit and it blends in with the chair. I mean, seriously, that's what we're talking about. And this is a very accomplished vice president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's not just men who engage in that kind of conversation. It's also women. And so we, you know, we have a long way to go. And I think when the press talks about women candidates in any way, whether it's good or bad, neutral, her likability will decline. And that is just a fact. Those are That's based on a real study. And so when you start thinking about that, well, that's not fair, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so we need less of that. We need less of style and more substance conversation. You know, what does she bring? What are the issues? What's the platform? And less about what she's wearing. Just like the way we you know, give Bernie Sanders and every other male candidates, politicians benefit of the doubt. And we don't talk about what they're wearing. We need to do the same with women. Yeah. And I like that you said that this is something women do to ourselves and each other also. So that's something that for any women who are listening, like to really notice maybe and even gently and I would say like with benefit of the doubt, but call it out in a comment section or call it out in, in conversation among friends. If women start to do that to other women, just to steer it away and just say like, okay, let's talk about the substance. Or would we be talking for this many minutes that I just clocked about what the guy is wearing? If we wouldn't, then let's, you know, let's steer it in a better direction. So that's yeah. something women can do too. Exactly. And this is such a sensitive topic because I really like to talk about problems at more sort of systemic level, institutional level, because it's like, I don't want to put that burden on women themselves, but in my mentoring chapter, I decided to interview a man. So I've interviewed 17 women and one man, <laughs> the book, and that man is uh, my mentor, you know, somebody who really helped me. And one of the things that was very prominent from all the interviews is that Almost every woman that I've interviewed had a very strong man who was there for them and mentor them and help them succeed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't women, but we need men to also participate in gender parity. And so, you know, like sort of framing it that way, like we, all, we want to educate men, but it's also like women sometimes who don't support us. And that does happen. My first boss, like my real job that I had not working for a nonprofit in San Francisco, the executive director was so, um, so inspiring and amazing until like I wanted to start my own organization. She did everything she could to undermine my efforts. 
So it does happen. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners could relate to that experience. And I don't know if you had that happen. A lot of feminists and women leaders did support me and I'm very grateful, but not all women are going to support you. I mean, that's just a fact. My own former boss endorsed my opponent when I ran for assembly. So it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And that's good to keep in mind and to not take it personally or let it bog us down, but to just make sure that we're supporting others and doing the best we can, right? Exactly. So one other topic that I want to have you talk about is the imagination barrier. And maybe I'll share just what came up for me when I read about this in your book. And that is you write about, and you you mentioned this a few minutes ago too, but how young men are more likely than young women to be socialized by their parents to think about politics as a career path. And when I read that, Mary, I suddenly, I like stopped and was like, oh my gosh, I have a daughter who loves debate and ethics. She's super, super bright and intelligent and digs into issues, really cares about social justice. She's a senior in high school. Never, ever in her life did it ever occur to me to ask her if she was interested in politics. I've suggested like, oh, would you want to be a teacher? Maybe like a college professor, get a PhD. Like, So I have high aspirations for her But in terms of like what field she would go into, she has all of these interests and passions and talents that she would be great in politics. Never occurred to me. So I went out from my like room where I was reading the book and I was like, Sophie, have you ever thought about politics before? And she's like, oh, yeah, totally. I said, I've never thought to ask you about that. She's like, yeah, you're right. You haven't. (laughs) And so anyway, it played out even for me in my own family. And we had a really rich conversation about it. I was like, you should start thinking about that because we need people like you you to be participating in leadership in the country. Would you ever consider that? Anyway, so thank you. Thank you for um, bringing that to my attention as a mom. I totally played into that gender stereotype and norm. So anyway, so you label this the imagination barrier. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing that personal story. You know, I feel like my job is done. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love that. Thank you. Yes. And all of us have experienced bias and sometimes we're limited by our own imagination. And I have the same thing going on like all the time. And even though like I ran for office and went through that whole process and, you know, served in government to this day, I still ask myself, like right before I speak in front of a group or whatever, I'm like, should I really say this? Is this worth saying something about or can I disagree with them? Is that... Mm -hmm. You know, and so that good girl training really mm-hmm. works because <laughs> I still struggle with it, even, you know, to this day. But one of the women that I interviewed for the book, I mean, the uh, hunter from Barbara Lee Family Foundation, they, they use some amazing research. And and she gave that name, Imagination Barrier, and use her quote, too, in the book. But the foundation did this focus group and asked people to envision a governor and most of them envisioned a white male. And I thought that was very powerful because as Jennifer Newsom said, you can't be what you can't see, you know, it's just, it's very powerful. And so that 
I think imagination barrier is really on an individual level. Like that is something that all of us need to be aware of, like sort of like you went through that process with your daughter. And it's not like a magic moment thing where you're going to be able to just catch that every time. But if all of us are aware of it, I think we can start envisioning different leadership and different type of people who run for office. And every time somebody runs for office, even if, even if you're not successful, that really helps to break down the imagination barrier. Yes. So, you know, I don't know if you noticed like Hillary Clinton ran and she was the first woman nominee of a major party. After she lost, how many women announced yes. for president? You know, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, a senator out of New York. I mean, there were so many women, not Nikki Haley on the other side. I mean, so then when the voters see Hillary or people see a woman running, just them running for office makes it possible for voters to envision a different leader. It's just mm. incredible. And yeah. it doesn't sound very complicated, but it is, you know, it's, yeah. it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really yeah. true, though. That's really, yeah, that's really powerful. Just having the visual image of like, oh, that kind of person. Now I can imagine that kind of person in that role where if you've never seen it, you can't. So another thing that you talk about under kind of the umbrella of the imagination barrier and a double standard, a gender double standard is the the motherhood imagination barrier and how we can certainly imagine men who have children having leadership positions, but not women who have children. Could you talk about that? Well, yeah. I mean, cause like nobody asks men like, Oh, Hey, like how are your kids? Like who's taking care of your kids while you're at this debate? Right. Nobody even thinks about that. Yep. But when I was writing the book, I, you know, I pulled together a lot of research materials that existed, found a New York times article and I read it and I thought, Oh, this is so great. I'm going to use it in my book. I'm going to reference it. I printed it out and I looked at the date and it was 1972. And I thought to myself, wow, things haven't changed much in some wow. ways because yeah. everything in this article I can relate to, you know, yeah. and one of the women I interviewed, Kathleen Galgiani, when she ran for assembly, her male opponent said, my opponent has no family values because she doesn't have children. So voters are critical of women candidates. They're very suspicious if you don't have kids because they worry about women candidates won't understand the issues concerning children or families. But voters are also suspicious when women candidates have smaller children mm -hmm. and they run for office and they critique women politicians, you know, with young kids. And in the book, I quote Grace Meng, Congresswoman Grace Meng, who took her small child to like a Saturday, like a weekend community event. And somebody said to her, I didn't vote for you so you could be a babysitter. You know, and so they will quest, voters will question, you know, women's ability to balance the task of being a good mother with the requirements and the demand of being an elected official. And so if you have kids, they will, you know, scrutinize you. If you don't have kids, then they think, oh, gosh, she doesn't get it. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's it's tough. So the, the chapter that I have in my book is called The Politics of Motherhood, because so many women in the book are strong leaders because 
they have a family, they tend to be a caregiver, and they have some role in sort of being a mom to somebody. So I, I try to see that as a strength. But at the same time, it's like you can't win in politics. And I'm sure it's very similar in the corporate world. I read a study that men start their own business because they want to be leaders and they want to be the president of their own company. Whereas women start their own business so that they can be available to their family members and their kids mm-hmm. and have the flexibility. So they they start their business because they want to serve others. Whereas men, they tend to start their own business because they want to be, you know, their own boss. And so it's it's a very complex one. And to this day, and you would think, you know, from the time that Barbara Boxer first ran for office, she often talks about how at the Sierra Club interview, this older lady asked her, like, if you're here, who's making dinner for your kids? You know, like somebody asked that. And this was decades ago. But in some ways, you know, we really haven't, I mean, we've accepted women with kids to run for office, but it's still kind of work in progress. Mm -hmm. You have to explain yourself. So if Amy wanted to run for office, you would, you know, you would have to explain your kid's situation and the, and get this, the voters tend to be more understanding if your kids are older. So they're like, okay, she doesn't have to balance the, you know, the responsibilities. She's going to be able to dedicate herself to the job. Whereas a man, you know, you don't have that going on and they're not that interested in, is family, kids' responsibilities. If you read the first chapter, Lauren book, the Senate uh, Florida minority leader, superstar in her mid-30s, who I think is going to be the governor of Florida someday, I hope. Somebody recruited her to run for the leadership position within her caucus, and, and her male opponent said to her, you just had a baby. How are you going to, you have twins, you have little babies. How are you going to do this? And so when she heard that, she decided to run for the position because she was like, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you how it's done. And she won. Mm -hmm. And this is still happening today. And so while we have accepted different variation of women candidates and politicians, we still have ways to go, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but I think we just still have it so baked into our culture that when we see a man who has a family, we just assume that we wouldn't need to ask who's making dinner for the kids because we assume his wife, their mother is making dinner for the kids. And like you said, I mean, it's changing so that women can do both. But the piece that needs to still change to catch up is that then that woman's partner does need to step in more because somebody does. Somebody does need to make dinner for those kids. Somebody does need to be reading them a bedtime story or whatever. And people want to make sure that children are taken care of. But we just assume that that's the the woman's job. And so the other piece is now that women are working more, that means that fathers get the joy and the privilege and the the burden sometimes, but get that experience of being the parent for their kids too. And we don't just assume that it's always going to be the woman, right? I mean, I guess that goes without saying, but it's still, it's not changing fast enough to keep up. Well, yeah. And, you know, do you, I, I don't know if you followed um, Sarah Palin when she was yep. vice president, show candidate. I mean, her husband was mocked and just shamed and just people really 
people were really mean to him, you know, because he was a man, like a family man taking care of the kids while the wife was out there, you know, campaigning. And he had that sort of, you know, they had the reverse roles. And I think that's again, like imagination barrier, like what's wrong with that? But people had a hard time with that. And, and now, you know, when you look at, you know, Kamala Harris and her husband seems to be just really enjoying the job. And he's yeah. just so happy as a white male to support like woman of color spouse. And I think that is so important when we talk about imagination barrier, because it's same for men too. Yeah. They can't be what they can't see. And I think it's important to see that we have second gentlemen who just loves that job of supporting the powerful woman of color spouse, you know? And, and so, I mean, I do feel that we are making progress. It's slow, but you know, it's, it's just happening. This is, we're kind of in this transition time, like, Oh, right. Okay. Now we're going to have a female president and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's a concept that people can embrace now. And, and so in California, we still haven't had a female governor. Can you believe that? I, wow, you're right. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh it's my true. goodness. Yeah. And everybody everybody thinks like California is super progressive and all of that, but we still haven't had a female governor. And we when I got elected, I think there were twenty-eight women out of hundred and twenty in the state legislature. Wow. Right. So we're still, you know, we're we're getting there, but you know, we still have long ways to go, I think. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. Okay, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about is the fundraising gap. And this was so, so interesting to me to see the numbers and how that works. And I do have to say, too, like you said at the beginning of the episode, it is, I think, m- way more uncomfortable for women to ask people for money and to be seen as you know, seeking that power or wanting money and um, being self-promoting. There are a lot of cultural barriers that make that really uncomfortable for women. But yeah, if you can talk about fundraising, that would be great. Yes. And I was raised never to ask for money from anybody under any circumstance. And my first job interview, like real job interview I had in San Francisco I didn't even ask how much the position paid because I would, I, you know, you don't make eye contact and you just accept whatever they give you. I mean, that was kind of how I was raised. So I was very uncomfortable. And the HR person's like, do you want to know what it pays? And I was like, okay. And I was just like, okay, thank you. And then you just kind of leave it at that and you move on. You know, you don't really, you know, you don't want to be ungrateful. You're just grateful for everything. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of like how Asian culture is. And and like you are nodding your head, like you relate to some of the things that I'm talking about. And so women go into sort of look at politics and think, oh, you know, would I be able to have the money? And so, you know, in the past, wealthy people have entered politics and they would, bring, you know, they bring their own resources and that's fine. But... What I wanted to point out was, you know, that most amount of money doesn't always guarantee that you win. 
And, you know, when I was like campaigning for my assembly race and I had raised, like I raised like $10 million for my nonprofit, but that's different because that's, mm-hmm. that's for a cause, you know, that's for public good. That's, it was really difficult transition because like I'm going from like, that was somebody who didn't even ask how much the job pays to call making cold calls, mostly men who are, you know, leaders and asking for money. Oh my God, it was, it was interesting, but I really had to do it and I got good at it eventually. But the point that I want to make is that if somebody like me can do it, so can you, yeah. honestly, because you find out so many good people want to contribute and want to help you. And so you just got to do it, you know, and you just got to get over that. And Jean Fuller, she was the uh, Senate Republican leader in California who had never thought about running. She was a school superintendent and her mentor, you know, congressman, another male who called her and said, you know, you should run for the assembly. And she's like, oh, how do I do this? And one day, like she received a box of just papers with like names of people and their phone numbers. And he said, just call these people. And so she's like, oh, what do I say? So it took her a while to kind of figure out her script. And she organized the list on her ironing board and started making those calls. And she said she just had no, you know, she's like, nobody told her, like, this is what you do or this is how, you know, she just kind of had to figure it out. And she's just, she said she was just really lost. And, but she ended up becoming California Senate Republican leader. And so um, I try to show those examples in the book to to say to people, like, seriously, if you want to do it, you could do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, like I did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but money and fundraising is a big deal. Women are just as competitive. Our contributions tend to be smaller, unfortunately. People write bigger checks to men because they think that men have better chance of winning. There's like a viability issue and kind of stereotyping women as like a weaker candidate, like, oh, can she win? Like you get that comment a lot. But, you know, there are so many examples that I cite in my book where women are competitive. They raise smaller dollars, but they're good fundraisers and they sometimes get outspent a lot by, you know, their opponent, but they still win. I mean, look at AOC, Alexandra raised, I think, virtually nothing. And she unseated an incumbent with the right messaging, you know, and Karen Bass, I mean, I was on, I worked on her campaign, her opponent put in $100 million of his own money. Like he just wrote a check to his campaign committee, because he's like, billionaire. And we went out and raised like $20, $100, those checks and raised 8 million, which is a lot, but not against 100 million. But she won comfortably, you know, so there's just so many inspiring examples Mm -hmm. of how you can overcome those barriers. So it can be done. It shouldn't be something that your daughter should be afraid to do. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're really good with social media, although I talk a lot about the dark side of social media, it allowed women to be competitive. Like social media, if you can use those platforms without spending a lot of money and reach a lot of people. And that is really a positive thing for women candidates. 
Yeah. One takeaway for me, just something that I remembered from this section is like you said, women raise smaller dollar amounts. Am I remembering correctly that they get the same number roughly of donors? So they, they'll get the same number of people contributing, but each contribution is bigger for a man and smaller for a woman. I thought that was really interesting. So women basically have to do many times the number of the phone calls or they have to recruit more in order to, you know, compete dollar for dollar. That was really interesting to me. And then, yeah, I just love those examples of even your own example of just being nervous and not knowing what to say and feeling like, oh, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And just for anybody who's listening, thinking like if that's what's stopping you is just not feeling qualified or I hate making cold calls or I hate asking for money, just hearing like, oh yeah, that's how everybody feels. You just have to toughen up and get over it. Like, What did you do when you're sitting there on the phone with butterflies in your stomach, feeling sick, and then you hang up, maybe you didn't do a good job and you feel stupid? Like, How do you psych yourself up to do the next one? Well, you just got to move on to the next one. Okay. I love it. Yeah. Just you do know, it. And um, yeah, I love to like beat myself up every minute. So that's like my, mm. <laughs> you know, and I think all of us have that little bit of that, right? Yeah. We just, we're like our own you know, critics and very harsh conversations with my own, you know, performance. But I started the campaign with like Tipper Gore endorsement, hmm. you know, and just had some pretty high power women backers. Wow. And I went to the local party chair and I said, I want to run for this. I raised all these money from my family and friends and I'm ready and and she said, no, you're not, because you don't have any experience running a campaign. And so I think you need to understand that, yes, you're going to have, no matter how much you raise or how well you do or how pumped up you feel, you know, there's always going to be that sort of other opinion, you know, that that reminds you that they're going to be critical of you no matter what. And so... I couldn't even impress my own party chair with Tipper Gore endorsement. And I had like, I think I had a lot of congressional support too, because I've done so much work in Washington, D.C., like including Nancy Pelosi, who was backing me and nobody was impressed. They're like, no, you're not ready. <laughs> and so, so, yes, I think, you know, being your own cheerleader, like understanding that you are going to make mistakes and it's not going to be perfect but you just have to keep going. And one of the interviews that I love, and I usually end my interviews with this quote from LaFonza Butler. She was president of the Emily's List, and now she's in the U.S. Senate. She's one of our California senators. You know, she said to me that, because I asked her, I was like, well, do you have any advice for people? You know, she's in a very powerful, was in a very powerful position to help candidates raise a lot of money. And she said, do it anyway, you know, you know, like, okay, so maybe you're not 100% qualified, you know, maybe you're not 100% ready, you know, but do it anyway. And I just love that because when I was 26 years old and started that nonprofit organization, I had a lot of support and I'm very grateful for that, but I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just a kid. <laughs> But I did it anyway, and it was hugely successful. It doesn't mean everything you take on will be a success. Of course not. I have failed just as many times as I've succeeded. But, you know, like I did it anyway, and I was so glad I did because I was able to make a 
big difference for for people and and it was it was amazing and raised 10 million dollars for a nonprofit organization that nobody's ever heard of or thought of you know asian american women i mean it wasn't really like on everybody's high list you know, you know a priority same thing with the assembly like i wanted to do it i thought i had some good role models i was very inspired i thought i'm going to I'm going to go to the state legislature and really shake things up and do some stuff around mental health. I mean, that was my passion. And people discouraged me. They didn't endorse me. They told me not to do it. The fundraising was difficult. I had my own personal cultural challenges, but I did it anyway. And I won, you know? And so I, I just love LaFonza's quote because often as women, we don't think about what we bring to the table. Okay, I was 26 years old, but certainly I had skills and I had things that I can do. But people will remind you what you don't have and what you don't bring to the table. What I'm asking you is think about what you do bring and what you can do, you know? And I think I live that advice that she gives to other women. I think I took chances and I did it anyway and had enormous amount of successes. And I think that if I can do it, my goodness, you know, just about anybody could. And that's the purpose of the book, is to, to show that the United States senator who was born and raised in Mississippi, lived on public assistance, raised by a single mom with multiple jobs, you know, somebody like her isn't supposed to be a United States senator, but she is, you know. And so through these examples of women, I you know, I think... Anybody who wants to pursue politics can. Well, that's a powerful and beautiful way to wrap up the episode. So Mary Chung Hayashi, thank you so much for being here today. I, again, I learned so much from your book. So glad I read it. Again, the title is Women in Politics, Breaking Down the Barriers to Achieve True Representation. Thank you for your book and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Amy. I love this. I want to come back. Please, please do. We'll make it happen. Thank you. And that wraps up today's episode. Before I go, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our editing and production and Aubrey Iyer for our social media. And as always, I want to thank you listeners for being here. And if you want to show your appreciation for this excellent ad-free content, the most helpful thing you can do is to forward this episode to your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do help people find the podcast, and the more people listen, the greater the impact of this grassroots movement to break down the patriarchal structures in our institutions and our relationships and build egalitarian structures in their place. Thanks again for joining me and make sure to tune in next time for another fascinating episode on breaking down patriarchy.